Hello, and welcome to Community Calls, our ongoing effort to keep the community updated with COVID-19 and other health-related issues during the pandemic. I am Dr. Panagis Galiatsatos, an assistant professor at the Johns Hopkins School of Medicine and a physician in pulmonary and critical care. Thank you for joining us. You guys, listeners, I can't stress this enough. Um, every week I say the same thing, but it, it's not to, meant to be a broken record, but one of a recognition that you are at the front lines, promoting health, preventing disease by disseminating this public health information. Today you are in for a treat. Uh, as we have, we have a returning guest, Dr. Crystal Watson, who is going to discuss contact tracing. And the emphasis here is one to kind of get a sense of, you know, this valuable tool, how has it helped over the course of the year? and also a recognition of how valuable this tool will be also moving forward, right? So many of your questions about can the vaccines help with stopping transmission and so forth, they're going to be valuable right here. They're going to be incredibly valuable during this time as more and more people get vaccinated. So, Dr. Watson, we are excited to have you. Let me give some updates, and then, of course, we'll turn it over to you all. The one other thing I do want to emphasize to our listeners today, uh, while it's the Dr. Jean Kimberly show, after I give my updates, I'm going to step away for a family a family situation. I think many of you know I lost my uncle this week. So Kimberly will tackle the questions with Dr. Watson. And as you guys have good questions that Dr. Watson or Kimberly can tackle, I promise we'll get to them via email and we'll send them off to you all. So have them come on in. So with that said, let me update you all with the numbers. And afterwards, I'm going to give you a brief update with what the CDC guidelines have put out, just to give you some sense of what you can begin doing now that we're vaccinated. So, how are we doing? Globally, there are 119,238,731 cases, with a mortality of 2,644,040, giving us a mortality rate of 2.2% globally. Here in the U.S., we have 29,927,572 cases, with a mortality of 543,000, 738, giving us a mortality rate of 1.8%. Here in the state of Maryland, 390,490 cases with mortality at 7,832, giving us a mortality rate of 2%. Now, of course, the new variable that we're adding is vaccine. So in the U.S., it looks like we're going to be passing 20% fully vaccinated adults in the U.S. Uh, as this weekend. And here in the state of Maryland, we are we're approaching, as last week we said, around the 12% top. It looks like we're still around that marking. Um, hopefully the numbers will be updated by the end of the day. But I promise you these are great numbers. And the fact that we are seeing an exponential rise, that's powerful. So keep up the good work as you secure vaccinations and so forth. And in upcoming weeks, we'll even have uh, some of our colleagues describe how to get vaccines here in the city uh, for many of us, that's been uh, challenging. Earlier this week, you know, good transition to the CDC guidelines, the CDC put out a statement uh, guiding us of what we can do without the vaccines. First, I want to make it clear that in order to make a medical decision or one of health, we either rely on experience, we rely on research, or we rely on biological plausibility. Right? Sometimes we don't need to prove something if we really understand biology and physics and science. Just 
So for instance, parachutes. We never did an intervention where one group got the parachutes and the other group got a placebo because we knew, felt confident, we understood how parachutes work. So with that said, let's discuss what the CDC put out. And please keep in mind, this is based on biological suspicion and strong insight into kind of what we've been seeing. Research on the vaccines and what you can do is actively being done at the moment and a variety of good studies coming out of Israel um, and Europe in addition to the U.S. But the CDC did feel comfortable to put out these guide guidances at the moment. Three that I'm going to tackle. One, visit with other fully vaccinated people indoors. So if you're going to gather with others who are fully vaccinated, guess what? You can do that without wearing masks and without needing to stay six feet apart, kind of like being pre-pandemic. So if you're going to gather with others who are fully vaccinated, yes, no masks, hug away, and so forth. Now, next question that's going to come up, and I can see this in the, our listeners' eyes, well, what about children? A lot of them haven't been, none of them have really been vaccinated. Pfizer's as, as young as 16. The guidelines did approach that. You can visit with unvaccinated people from one other household indoors without wearing masks or staying six feet apart if, here's the if, everyone in the household is at low risk for severe disease. So what that's trying to convey is if you're going to visit with another household and you know they're low risk of catching COVID and low risk of, of yourself uh, developing COVID-19 severe because you've, you've been vaccinated and the children we know have been okay, then yes, you can gather with them. Grandparents can gather with the children. I will say with these two com with the second comment, the CDC is trying to keep one foot in enjoyment and one foot with uh, reservation, meaning it's an allowance of one household, right, of gathering. I say this because the CDC does recognize that we think biologically we won't transmit and we won't uh, cause anyone's life to be threatened with those kind of gatherings. But until more data is published and more research is done, you will probably see the CDC go from one household to maybe two to three or return as usual. The third one I want to mention is that you can refrain from quarantining and testing if you do not develop symptoms of COVID-19 after coming into contact with someone who has COVID-19. So if you've been vaccinated and you got notified by your congregation or your public housing unit and so forth that someone here had COVID and you were in, interacting with them, but you have no symptoms, no need to quarantine, no need to get tested. It looks like the vaccine is working properly for you and we suspect you're at very low risk for even transmitting. So three big key principles put out by the CDC. You can visit with others fully vaccinated and just interact with them as you usually would have done without masks and being six feet apart. And you can do the same thing if you're going to visit one other household where you know they've been doing the right things to not catch COVID-19. And those who are unvaccinated are not at risk for developing severe disease. And finally, no need to quarantine or test if you yourself are vaccinated and potentially have come into contact with someone with COVID-19. So those are the three great CDC guidelines. I'm excited next week we'll continue presenting more as the CDC keeps putting them out. But with that said, Kimberly, I don't want to take up more time. We have an amazing guest. Back to you, my friend. And to our listeners, I've already mentioned I will be stepping away. So if we get great questions about COVID-19 and the guidelines, Kimberly will send them to me and we'll tackle, I promise. But Kimberly, 
Over to you, my friend. Thank you for helping out today. And let's get Dr. Watson going. Thank you, Dr. G, and uh, take care, my friend. So again, um, I'd like to welcome today's guest speaker, Dr. Crystal Watson, Senior Scholar at the Johns Hopkins Center for Health Security and Assistant Professor in the Department of Environmental Health and Engineering at the Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health. Good morning, Dr. Watson, and thank you for joining us again. And just remember to uh, press star six to unmute your line. Can you hear me, Kimberly? Yeah, great. Okay, great. Thanks for that reminder. Yeah, well <laughs> Thanks done. for having me. So um, before we start, could you provide um, for a brief background about the work that you do? Yeah, of course. So I work for the Center for Health Security, and what we do in our, in our day jobs before the pandemic um, was to prepare our country, um, both at the local, state, and national levels, and the international level to respond to public health emergencies like pandemics. And so when COVID-19 hit, um, my colleagues and I jumped into response mode and have been um, helping the government at, at those multiple levels to, to respond to the pandemic and put in place policies that will help us um, save lives and, and make this uh, weather the storm over the last year. So one of my big focuses over the last year has been on um, helping to establish contact tracing as a it's a, been a massive workforce upgrade for public health and trying to provide guidance to health officials on how they can roll that out successfully. Great, thank you so much for sharing. So we, we have talked about contact tracing in the past, but for those who are new to the conversation, can you just briefly explain what exactly contact tracing is and why it's been important? Yeah, the purpose of contact tracing is really to break chains of transmission between people from, from this virus. So the idea is if someone tests positive, uh, they're identified hopefully quickly through a test and notifies that they, they have been infected. Um, and then someone from the health department who's a contact tracer will get in touch with that individual and ask them who their close contacts have been during the time they may have been infectious, which is about two days before you develop symptoms up until the point that you're, you're isolated and no longer in contact with people. And so by asking who, who those contacts are, which are people who have been within six feet of a person who's been infected for about 15 minutes or more cumulatively over a day. Um, once those people are contacted, then they're notified that they, they've had an exposure and the health department asks them to quarantine. Um, early on in the pandemic, they were asked to quarantine for two weeks for 14 full days. Uh, the CDC changed their guidance, uh, I think, late last year to say that um, to reduce that to 10 days or in, if someone can get a test on day, uh, between day five and seven, it could be as little as seven days. And so if people are able to quarantine and not expose others, then we can kind of break chains of transmission there and stop the, the spread of this virus. So Dr. Watson, we know that contact tracing um, was going to be a vital tool for a pandemic. Can you share any lessons learned after a year of contact tracing? And has it changed in any way over the past year? 
Yeah, that's a great question, Kimberly. It, it ha I think we've learned a lot over this last year. We had contact tracing capacity within our health departments uh, previously, but it was very, very small, and it was uh, used for uh, very small outbreaks of different infectious diseases prior to the, the pandemic breaking out. So this is really new for health departments to do contact tracing on this scale, so there's been a lot to learn. Uh, I think for the first thing we've learned is that contact tracing works best if cases are, are relatively low to begin with. Um, we saw over the winter, that this large winter surge, that um, health departments that have, which have, are generally under-resourced anyway, became quickly overwhelmed by just the sheer volume of, of people being infected. And so contact tracing can't keep up when you have so many infections happening. Um, so as a result, and CDC put out some guidance in the fall on this, uh, health departments have had to prioritize who they contact trace when, when we have a large surge of infection. So that could be uh, places that are uh, particularly dangerous for transmission, so indoor, um, indoor venues, places where people have to congregate in large numbers might have been prioritized for contact tracing, or people who are particularly vulnerable, who are um, on the front lines working uh, working with, with people who may have COVID or who are at danger of developing a severe disease or, or dying from this infection. Um, so that is something we learned over time that um, dealing with prioritization when things are overwhelming. We've also learned that businesses can really contribute to this effort um, to help with contact tracing by either um, providing contact tracing services for their employees um, or by contributing data to health departments about exposures in the workplace. And that, that can be really helpful to contract tracing efforts. Um, we also have learned a couple of things about what conditions make contact tracing most effective. So first, it's um, it, contact tracing works best if, if tracers are hired from the local community um, and they reflect the community that they, they want to help through contact tracing. Um, it helps if people can speak the same language, if they have similar experience, life experiences. That has um, jurisdictions that have done that have been most successful. And fortunately, Baltimore City has been, has been one of those jurisdictions. Uh, contact tracing also works best if, if the health department has resources to offer people to help them quarantine. Um, things like offering help with childcare or um, elder care if, if they have people in their home that, that need care if they have to, to quarantine. Um, or even, and I think the most successful is replying, su supplying replacement income for people who uh, aren't able to work during that quarantine period. Um, also, in places where uh, employers are generous with their leave policies, both for uh, people who are sick and those who have to quarantine. That is, makes us most doable for people and most successful at, at limiting the spread of this virus. I think those are the, big, the biggest lessons that we've learned this year. Great. That's great. Thank you so much for sharing. And I know that, you know, Johns Hopkins had offered a, a course on how to um, 
on contact tracing. Do you know how many people, whether from Baltimore and Maryland, ended up signing up to become contact tracers? Yeah, um, so I know that, that Maryland has hired uh, a few thousand people to be contact tracers. Um, I'm, I was unable to find the, the local Baltimore number, but I know that they have had a big push to hire contact tracers uh, within the city. And as I said before, contact tracers who live in the neighborhoods that, that they want to help serve. So that has been really important. In terms of the, the contact tracing um, course that's been online, it's uh, my colleagues who developed that have had such great success with that. They offered it for free to anyone, anywhere, basically around the world. And I think we've had hundreds of thousands of people take that course. Um, it's often a prerequisite, I think, for, for many cities in the U.S. to um, do contact tracing. They, uh, jurisdictions often offer additional training that are very specific to that location, but uh, I think it's been adopted pretty widely, which is, is really exciting, and we're glad that, that um, my colleagues were able to help put that together and, and have that go out so widely. Great. Thank you. So can you tell us more about how contact tracing has, impact, has impacted Baltimore and or Maryland? And maybe you could provide some examples of how it helped stop or maybe um, becoming a super spreading event? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so it's a little bit hard to quantify because, um, first of all, health departments are have been so overwhelmed with doing um, the different components of the response for COVID-19, so having to do testing and tracing and now uh, vaccination. So um, we always wish we had more information about exactly um, what these interve interventions have done to, to make us um, safer, but not a perfect world. But I do know that... that um, our rates of, of infection have remained relatively low in Maryland compared to a lot of other states and localities. And I think a big part of the reason for that um, is, first of all, adherence from our population who have been generally pretty great about following public health guidance and wearing masks and doing the right, the right things to prevent infection. But I, I do think uh, contact tracing has also had uh, in impact. Um, so we, our, our hospitals have not been severely overwhelmed in, in Maryland like they have in some other places in the country where uh, contact tracing was less well established. And um, I think that it, the, the benefits of contact tracing are really to catch cases early. So you may not prevent all transmission, but I do think as a routine, it does help limit those super spreading events because uh, you're just not flying blind and, and having people go out into their community not knowing that they've been exposed. Um, it's not been perfect, but I, I think um, when it comes down to it, and we, we do some more research on the impact of contact tracing that we will see that it, it has made a difference in Maryland. So I'm, I'm curious, did the concept of contact tracing exist before this pandemic, if not even here in the States and other parts of the world, or is this something that we developed to help um, prevent the spread of this virus? 
Yeah, so contact tracing is actually has been a key uh, tool of public health for a long time, many decades. Um, but it's been used on a much more limited basis in the U.S. Uh, traditionally because um, we haven't we haven't had a pandemic like this uh, in a long time here. So um, it's been used for sexually transmitted infections, for example, or for um, when two years ago there was a, a pretty substantial measles epidemic uh, in New York State. And contact tracing was one of the things that helped get that under control. But like I said, it, it has not um, had a lot of resources attached to it in the past. Um, in other parts of the world, uh, in West Africa, for example, in the response to the 2014 to 2016 Ebola epidemic there, contact tracing was a really key tool and it was deployed very widely to try and identify contacts and um, stop the epidemic there. And that was before, um, in large part, we had vaccine, the Ebola vaccine. So that was the, the critical tool that, um, that health experts had in that emergency, and it has helped. And there are lots of other examples of that internationally. So I hope going forward in the U.S., we incorporate this on a more permanent basis into our public health infrastructure. And I think we will. Uh, what we've seen now from um, the national level, this, this latest round of, of funding in the American Rescue Plan that has just been passed includes a significant amount of money for health departments, not just to do contact tracing, it will help with that, but to have uh, a larger infrastructure for public health that can um, work, work for the communities to help with all types of public health issues, but then can also ramp up and scale up more quickly for contact tracing in the event that we have another infectious disease emergency like this. So with the vaccine um, distribution increasing, what role will contact tracing continue to have moving forward? That is a really great question. I think the role will actually be bigger now than, than it has been in the past several months. Like I said, uh, contact tracing was pretty overwhelmed in the fall and winter. Um, but now, as we have more people vaccinated and as rates of infection begin to fall, um, we will get back to a place where contact tracing uh, comprehensively can be much more successful. And so my hope is that even as we vaccinate and protect people, we can also employ contact tracing um, to help break chains of transmission even further. And that, as we do that, as we add those two interventions together, it will help drive down rates even more quickly and will get us back to a place of, of normalcy um, even faster than if we were just using vaccine. It can also help um, as we go forward, if there are introductions of the virus back into our communities, if we have that contact tracing infrastructure, we can catch those quickly so they don't become widespread epidemics once again. That is the goal, and I, I hope that that's um, how we will be prepared to respond in the coming months. Great. Thank you. You know, on that note, so, you know, many of our congregations um, are being allowed to gather in small groups in public settings. Do you believe they should prepare themselves for the purposes of contact tracing? 
Yes, I think this is really important um, because we do still have virus circulating at pretty high levels in our communities. Um, we are down substantially from that peak that we saw in the winter, but we're still at a level that is above the, the previous peaks that we experienced last uh, summer and spring. And so um, we still have lots of virus out there. I, with CDC's new recommendations that Dr. G just went through, um, I think it's still important to keep in mind that there may be exposures happening and you may have to have to react to that. So as uh, particularly as congregations think about gathering more, they should still keep in mind the, the public health um, protections that the health department is recommending, but also help the health department um, to provide information about attendance so that in the, in the case that you have a, um, an infection in, um, within a congregation, that it will make it easier to do contact tracing rapidly and give people the information that they need to protect themselves. Uh, so I think that should be a consideration in the near future as hopefully we were, we are close to um, being out of this pandemic, but we're not there yet. So I think that's a, a key thing to keep in mind. Thank you, Dr. Watson. And you know, I guess I'm trying to think back when we started. Um, uh, I'm thinking um, May when Dr. G and I were holding virtual um, meetings to help congregations reopen safely. Back then, when we thought that we could. And mm -hmm. when we talked about contact tracing, you know, we had suggested them keeping an attendance sheet. And mm -hmm. then if, if someone within the congregation that had attended a service would notify um, the faith-based leader that they had tested positive with COVID-19, then they were able to go back to the congregation to let them know that they may have been possibly exposed. Um, right. and, and, but also, you know, keeping the confidentiality of that person um, so I think that's something, um, you know, to, to keep in mind that a suggestion that folks could use as an attendance sheet and, again, um, you know, reporting that to the proper health authorities. So thank you so much for that. Um, it looks like, so um, I do have a few community questions coming in regarding contact tracing. Um, yeah. So if, but before we do, is there anything else that you wanted to add um, to what we've already discussed before we move on to those. Just that I, I'm very hopeful. I think it's, it's very exciting, the rates of vaccination that we're seeing and, and um, that we're seeing cases come down. And so I'm very hopeful that we are going to have a good summer. And as long as we continue to try to abide by the health department suggestions for the next couple of months. I really, really see a light at the end of this tunnel soon. So just want to convey that, that optimism. Great. Thank you. That's very encouraging. Thank you for sharing that. Um, so the one question, um, will information on all individuals vaccinated be kept by the I'm not sure if you know this. Uh, individuals vaccinated be kept by the states for purpose of contact tracing as necessary. Um, I'm not sure if that's a... So I don't think that all information about who's been vaccinated will necessarily be kept by the state. I think it, it's more likely that it will be more localized to where you are vaccinated. If you're vaccinated by a health department, that may, that may be the case. So um, your information is stored 
centrally, um, but I know especially as vaccine becomes more widely available, there will be lots of different ways that you can be vaccinated. Um, the CDC recommendation uh, for people who are vaccinated actually is that if you have, if you're two weeks post uh, vaccination, post the second vaccine, if you're, if you have one of the two dose vaccines or after the first vaccine, if you are um, taking the J&J &J vaccine, then you don't actually um, have to quarantine if you have had a, an exposure as long as you don't have symptoms. So that is the official CDC recommendation. So someone who's vaccinated wouldn't necessarily uh, be contacted by somebody uh, for, um, for contact tracing in that case. Thank you. So the next question um, is about the alert system on the phone. Um, you know, when you, know, you sign up for that system to notify you about um, possible exposure, do you know what information can be expected to be received if you get an alert on your phone that someone, I guess, potentially in your area was tested positive? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so, this, uh, so that is the exposure notification um, app, which is on Google or Android um, or Apple phones. And so it is highly anonymized. So you would know um, that you have had an exposure if you receive that notification, but wouldn't know necessarily where it happened. Um, you would receive information through the app about what steps you should take next, which is quarantine. And I believe you receive uh, information from the health department about how you can get in touch with them to access resources and to talk to someone if you'd like to hear more. Um, it's, it's pretty straightforward, and I think there, uh, the most important thing is that there will be resource links that, that come to you in, in that message. Great. Thank you. So um, the last thing I was hoping to discuss, um, and just kind of a, a reminder of to people what sort of questions a contact tracer would ask them if they got a call and what questions they do not. I know this has come up a lot. You know, things like social security number and some more personal mm -hmm. information, um, just to prepare people on what information they should be sharing and what information um, they should not be sharing. That's, that's a really important question. I'm glad you brought that up. Um, so the health department will first need to make sure that you are the person they're trying to contact because they don't want to share any uh, private information with someone who's not the individual that that is a need. So they may ask you about your full name. They may ask you about your birthday um, to try and make sure as, as much as they can that you're the person that, that they're trying to get in touch with. But they should not ask you for your social security number. They certainly should not ask you for uh, any bank information, anything like that. It should be very simple. Um, and if someone asks you for those things, then I would uh, ask for a supervisor, first of all, and I would also um, not give them that information and go to the either city or state or county website um, to get in touch with someone from contact tracing there because that, that is likely to be a, a fraudulent call. I appreciate you clarifying that. 
So that is all of our community questions. The others, um, you know, again, just remind people if you have any questions specific to um, vaccines or any other um, pandemic-related questions, feel free to email them to the MGG at jhmi.edu, and uh, we'll be sure to address them. So again, um, so Dr. Watson, I really appreciate you taking the time to join us again today. It was a pleasure having you back. Um, I really appreciate you sharing um, the importance of contact tracing. I know we've talked about it a few times before, but it's always important to kind of reiterate that, especially now. We don't want people to think, uh, forget about it with the vaccines out there. So thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks a lot, Kimberly. I'm really I'm glad to join you and glad to share this information. Thank you. So before I turn the call over to Reverend Johnson, please join us again for our next COVID-19 Community Partners Call on Friday, March the 19th at 11 a.m. Our guest speaker will be Dr. Anna Durbin, Associate Professor in Infectious Disease at the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine, and she will provide an update on the vaccine. Now, for those who would like to stay on the call, Reverend Johnson will offer closing thoughts and a prayer. Good morning, Kimberly. Can you hear me? I can. Thank you. Great. So good morning to you and to everyone, and thank you. And thank you, Dr. Watson, for um, the information, uh, the very useful and relevant information you have shared today. And of course, our prayers are with Dr. G and his family. And so um, as we close today, uh, even and perhaps especially during a pandemic, it can be helpful to find things to celebrate, whether alone or safely in small gatherings. This coming Wednesday, many in our community will recognize and celebrate St. Patrick's Day. It is a day that celebrates the life of St. Patrick, the patron saint of Ireland. This influential missionary uh, has been credited with bringing Christianity to Ireland. St. Patrick's Day takes place on March 17th each year because St. Patrick's death is believed to have been on March 17, 461. The church began observing a special feast to honor him on this day starting in 1631. St. Patrick's Day switched over from a strictly holy day for Catholics to an official Irish public holiday in 1903. In Ireland, St. Patrick's Day had been viewed mostly as a religious observance. And up until the 1960s, they even had laws that forbid bars from being open on that day. Before St. Patrick became a missionary, it is believed that he had been kidnapped at the age of 16 and taken to Ireland as a slave. St. Patrick is said to have been buried in the town of Downpatrick, County Down in Northern Ireland. And so in honor of the saint and of persons in our community who will celebrate St. Patrick's Day, we offer this Irish blessing upon you all as we mark the one-year anniversary of the COVID-19 pandemic. Going forward, may God give you, for every storm, a rainbow, for every tear, a smile, and for every care, a promise, and a blessing in each trial. For every problem life sends, a faithful friend to share. For every sigh, a sweet song and an answer for each prayer. As you go forth this day, purposely find a reason to smile and then intentionally do something to make someone else smile. Joy and laughter are far more contagious than COVID-19. In God's joyful name we pray, amen.
Thank you, Reverend Johnson. And Reverend Johnson is always one to make me laugh, so thank you. And thank you, everyone, for listening today. Have a great weekend. Be safe and be well. Bye-bye. This podcast is made possible by the Johns Hopkins Bayview Healthy Community Partnership, its Department of Spiritual Care and Chaplaincy, Johns Hopkins School of Medicine's Medicine for the Greater Good, and the Johns Hopkins Institute for Clinical and Translational Research.